Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 12 of our podcast. And it's such a pleasure that you're joining us. We couldn't ask for a more insightful audience, and there's more and more of you, and that's so exciting. So keep your comments coming. We love hearing from you. And from all over the world. We're so thrilled you're enjoying our story project. And for those of you who asked, I do really enjoy making all the voices of all the characters in Time's Riddle. And if you have a favorite one, I'd love to hear which one it is. If you're new here, Jesse will be reading from Time's Riddle, a story project we've been working on. And after the reading, we have some fun discussing the history behind our tale. And we've had such a good time researching and working on this project. At this point in our story, Philomena and Constance have gone to see Joan. They found out that the author of the mysterious letter is not Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, but the great poet Sir Thomas Wyatt. In this section, they are returning to the inn to look for more clues. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 12, The Arundel Inn, in which a room is searched and heartstrings plucked. At the inn, Philomena was met by clamour. There was no more Malmsey for the Earl of Derby. Lord Lumley was demanding clean linen, but refusing to pay extra for it. The new cook had burnt the roast, the tennis court surveyors wanted their wages, and a dirty chimney had smoked a now disgruntled Flemish merchant out of his room. Philomena finessed each demand and then found the location of young Wyatt's rooms, noted in an old ledger. How fortunate, Philomena said. The room is unoccupied. Sir William Norris is away at Cecil House, being tortured to learn his mathematics with your friends Oxford and Honeywood. Constance passed off the tease. Philomena thought there could be only one reason why a young, attractive lady would not take every advantage of friendships with the lads of Cecil House. Are you hiding an attachment, Constance? Zounds, I give you my oath. I will not tell a soul. I am not married, but almost so, Constance admitted. I am intended to Sir Charles Paget. Ah, the very tall one. He is a smooth gentleman. Does the Queen consent? Both of your families are so very pig-headed. Philomena raised her eyebrows in jest as she said this. Queen has not given her permission, but I hope that if I can distinguish myself with Princess Cecilia, I will gain Her Majesty's favour. I wish you good fortune. The Queen is said to be a two-headed beast, one generous, one furious. It is true. The moment, the day, the hour, all these must be weighed when Charles and I bring the matter to her. Leading Constance to what used to be young Wyatt's, but was now Black Jack's brother William's room, Philomena considered how the many chambers of the inn had been like so many horse stalls until her mother left them in her hands. Now she understood how her mother found the character in each one, and faulted herself for not paying attention until it was required of her. They were each distinct, luxurious, spare, sunny, prone to damp. Each one had features and an asking price engraved in Philomena's memory. This one had housed young Wyatt, misguided, yes, but still brave. He sought to strong-arm Queen Mary to his own will. How full of pride he must have been. In this room he might have said goodbye to whomever he loved most, perhaps a little son or daughter. He had put himself before the hand of fate and it had slapped him into dust. Philomena looked about her, wondering where something might have been hidden away for all these years. There were some aging floorboards. She hoped the carpenter had not yet repaired them. Under the floor was a good place to start a search. Constance stooped down to Philomena, helping to lift a board. Between the ceiling beams, she spied a man below who seemed to be painting his hair. A pox on thee, Philomena damned the man in a whisper. Show some consideration. 
ruin the linens and floors of your own house, you wee knob. Constance realized what a naive she was. Men dyed their hair red, just like ladies. Did Her Majesty really bestow a favor because someone matched her hair color? Mistress. A young man was looking down on her. She stood up quickly, as did Philomena. Good day, sir, said Philomena, without a bit of fluster. Constance, however, felt as if he had walked in on her, sitting on the privy. She curtsied. Forgive me for trespassing, sir. This is not his room, it is his brother's, and I am here as innkeeper, Philomena said. Black Jack was fuming. The girl standing next to Philomena was Constance Stoner, hell's fury. It was all he could do not to grab the jade by the hair and drag her far away from Philomena and far away from his brother's room. How dare she try to implicate his own family in her Catholic treason? What is your purpose here, Philomena? he demanded. This floor is unsteady. In Sir William's absence, I thought to attend to it, Philomena said calmly. And you brought this friend to fix it? Mistress Stoner is a fine carpenter. Philomena saw his angry face fix on Constance. Her surname was a brand. There is nothing to trouble you here. My carpenter friend is as honest as Christ himself. How she loves to hammer. We women are denied such mannish pleasures. Go, sir, have a drink at my expense, and leave us girls to our indulgence. Mistress, stop this ridiculousness. Why are you in my brother's room? It is my property. I will not remain at an inn where rooms are searched for no reason. My inn is the finest in London, but by all means find one that suits you better, Sir John. He quit the room abruptly. Philomena shut the door behind him. Constance wanted to ask what made this young man aggressive, but Philomena's jaw had a stubborn set. A self-importance attends that gentleman, Constance said. It is true. He has no right to his brother's room, has he? Jacob would not give Esau or Key to his rooms. Are the brothers estranged? Constance asked. They are not, but that does not give Sir John Norris the right to enter. The door had been open, but Constance thought it best not to remind Philomena. Norris, I believe I have seen him at court, and there is an older one, is there not? There is. Sir Henry Norris is his father. He looks nothing like, though. The father is of a size to put a strain on his horse, and he has a ginger beard thus. Philomena gestured waves down her chest. I feel a bit crestfallen that a dark Adonis, even a presumptuous one, should end as his father, Philomena chuckled. With a dyed beard and the belly of Dionysus, t'would be sad indeed. I will warn Sir John, or Blackjack as he is called, the next time he fills his plate. Oh, do not, Philomena. In some way this Blackjack will know it was I, and I feel his dislike already. It is not you, Constance. It is his loyalty to the Queen that speaks. He sees treason everywhere. His grandfather was executed as one of Anne Boleyn's lovers. Now the queen makes it up, and his family is bound tight to her. Philomena did not want to give another moment's thought to Blackjack. Under the bed, Constance, there is a loose board. Let us look there. Nothing was found, but as she rode home in Philomena's sedan chair, Constance was duly satisfied with the discovery of the author's identity, even if that Joan was the overweening messenger. Three of Wyatt's verses from the box were snugly tucked in her bodice. A secret, something she alone would uncover. A metaphor for the relic. A verse about a lost keepsake. Greeted by the accustomed revelry at Bedford House, Constance did not even poke her head around to see who was attending, but slipped right up to her room and began to read. 
Go burning sighs unto the frozen heart, To break the ice which pity's painful dart Might never pierce, and if that mortal prayer In heaven be heard, at least yet I desire, That death or mercy end my woeful smart, Take with thee pain, whereof I have my part, And eke the flame from which I cannot start, And leave me then in rest I you require, Go burning sighs, Fulfill that I desire. Mortal prayer, Constance considered. Could that be an allusion to the old religion? Unlikely. Could my part be the relic? No, it could not. This poem was about love and passion. She wanted to feel so full of passion, yet at the same time she did not. She had not read much poetry. Aunt Stoner preferred Augustine, Jerome, Erasmus, and the like. In truth, there were no books of poetry to be found at Stoner. These words were exhilarating, and not in the same way as the Our Father. Elin Snakenborg breezed into the chamber and began to bang chests open. Christina, Gabriel's daughter, traipsed after and, with heavy sighs, cast herself on the bed. You are such a bore, said Elin to Christina as she lifted a breast and stuffed a rag beneath it, and then did the same to prop up its sister. Delectable, do you not agree? Oh, you should try it, Mistress Constance. A bold liniment is enticing said Elin. You are fashion-wise, said Constance, not looking up. What are you reading? Christina inquired of Constance. Verse? Is it love verse? It will consume Mistress Heartsick. Elin fluffed herself and flounced out of the room. Oh, truly, I love poetry d'amour. Christina closed her eyes, waiting for the reward. Constance read, I find no peace, and all my war is done. I fear and hope I burn and freeze like ice. I fly aloft, yet can I not arise. And nought I have, and all the world I seize on, that locks nor looseth, holdeth me in prison. And holds me not, yet can I scape no wise, nor lets me live, nor die at my device. And yet of death it giveth me occasion. Without eye I see, without tongue I plain. I wish to perish, Yet I ask for health, I love another, and thus I hate myself. I feed me in sorrow, and laugh in all my pain. Lo, thus displeaseth me both death and life, and my delight is causer of this strife. This verse, Christina exclaimed, so luxuriant, such rhythm, ta-ti-ta-ti-ta-ti-ta-ti-tum, it is the beat of the heart. I wish I could pen such words for my love. In Sweden we only have Euphemia Visnora. I'm weary of that old thing. The poet writes, I love another, and thus I hate myself. That does not sound pleasant, Constance pointed out. It is a tidal passion. His love is syrup thick and sweet. Do you not agree? I have no art to put my words into feeling. To my eagle I write uninspired pleasantries. I miss you, or I miss you more every day. It rains here. I despise myself for my lack of poetry. Oh, Christina, do not despise yourself. We cannot all be versifiers, but we can read. Are we not fortunate in that? You are wise, Mistress Constance. Oh, read another. A lady gave me a gift she had not, and I received her gift which I took not. She gave it me willingly, and yet she would not, and I received it, albeit I could not. If she give it me, I force not, and if she take it again, she cares not. Consider what this is, 
and tell not, for I am fast sworn I may not. Oh, riddle, I love riddles. Oh, Mistress Constance, this is much more enjoyable than the hubbub downstairs. Hmm, let me think on it. Constance wondered if the gift in the riddle could be Sir Thomas More's ring. After all, it could not be possessed. It was of a holy man, a dead one at that. So it could not be given or taken as a regular thing. And at the end, consider what this is and tell not. Puzzle out what this is and tell no one. He could not tell that he had the ring, and he wrote this riddle as a hint to some person. That must be it. It is a kiss. Yes, that is the answer, Christina said. A kiss, an embrace, perhaps more, and he cannot tell a soul. You do not think, Christina, that it could speak of a token, a religious one? Christina snorted. A religious token? No, no, there is nothing holy in this. It deals of love, 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 and nothing else. Christina, you are predestined to think of love, Constance said. But Christina beamed, perceiving this a compliment. You have only one more. Let us savour it together. Constance obliged and read, If weaker care, if sudden pale colour, if many sighs with little speech to plain, now joy, now woe, if they my share disdain, for hope of small, if much to fear therefore, to haste or slack my pace to less or more, be sign of love, then I do love again. If thou ask whom, sure, since I did refrain her that did set our country in a roar, the unfeigned cheer of Phyllis hath the place that Brunette had. She hath and ever shall. She from myself now hath me in her grace. She hath in hand my wit, my will, and all. My heart alone well worthy she doth stay, without whose help scant do I live a day. It is the voice of an older man. Constance considered, as if the poet aged and lost his fire. A bit reasonable. Brunette was the old love, and this Phyllis the new. Do you think he grew tired of waiting for the one he loved, or that something happened to her? I think he liked Phyllis better. She is more cheerful. What has cheerful to do with love? Christina demanded. A pet is cheerful. This man is not who I believed him to be. He was deceitful, unconstant, in fact, I am sure that verse is by a different poet. May I have the freeze and burn one, Mistress Constance? I would copy it out and send it to my eagle. What if Lady was a cipher for the ring, thought Constance? Or if it were a woman, could she be alive and know about Sir Thomas More's relic? Strange conjecture. These poems yielded nothing but more questions. In the beginning of this chapter of Time's Riddle, we don't see the queen, but we feel her influence. Mm -hmm. And that is something Jesse and I really wanted to get across. Elizabeth's influence is everywhere in this time period in England, even in the color hair people desired. We have a man dyeing his beard red at the Arundel Inn, and this was a common practice to try to look like the queen. We are so bombarded with images. We have a choice of influencers. But in 16th century England, only one person ruled as a living icon, Elizabeth. In an age without screens and billboards, which is really hard for us to imagine, 
Elizabeth's was the most common image to see, besides possibly religious images. But with the Reformation's prohibition on worshiping images, I wonder if Elizabeth's subjects saw as many, if not more, images of their queen than they did of the Madonna. Elizabeth's likeness was everywhere. Right from the start of her reign, it was stamped into the new coins she had minted. Her image was printed on the frontest piece of books, and all the nobility would have had a likeness of her in their homes maybe a portrait or a miniature. There were different sizes and qualities of representation depending on what you could spend. There were printed images or small-scale copies sold all over the country, ready-made or sold to order. It's probable that artisans and gentry, as well as the super-rich, had the queen's likeness hung up in their homes. And these images were strictly controlled. Right from the beginning of her reign, Elizabeth commissioned portraits to be copied and disseminated. And if an unofficial likeness of her was discovered, it was destroyed. This dissemination of Elizabeth as an icon flourished over the four decades of her reign, and it reached its tippy top in the 1590s with the cult of Gloriana. But even in the early years, she was very controlling. In the 1560s, Elizabeth depicted herself with symbols of her Tudor lineage to reinforce the idea that she had the right to be the queen. Mm -hmm. She had a right to the throne. She understood the importance of her image of being seen and presented in the most effective way possible. Image is always important for a ruler, but in Elizabeth's case, I think it was especially important. It's hard for us to imagine, to remember, to put ourselves in a place where she was such an un unprecedented ruler. She was in such an unprecedented position as an unmarried monarch ruling as a woman, not as a male warrior who could fight for the throne on the battlefield. And she was a queen who many people saw as having a pretty iffy right to the throne. Elizabeth wanted to connect herself to her father, who was a very powerful leader. But it was hard to ignore that her mother, Anne Boleyn, had been extremely unpopular, to put it mildly. Yeah. She died branded with a big A for adultery or a T for treason. <laughs> and her marriage to Henry VIII was nullified. And Elizabeth herself was declared a bastard. I think she understood right from the beginning that being popular with the people was the only way she was going to keep her power. And a strong image was part of that. I've read so many snarky comments about the way Elizabeth presented herself that she was a monster of vanity and that that's what motivated her being so protective of her likeness. I'm not saying Elizabeth wasn't vain, but I give her a lot more credit than that. I think Elizabeth was motivated by something so much stronger than vanity over her looks. She understood it was critical to deify herself in order to keep power as an unmarried queen. We look back at her 45-year reign as inevitable, but she had to fight every step of the way in the misogynistic 16th century. And never before or since Elizabeth Tudor has the Western world had a female monarch who rose alone, ruled alone, and died alone. It's breathtaking. Yeah, so here we have this insignificant fellow in his room at the Arundel Inn trying to look a teeny little, tiny little bit more like his impressive queen. Everybody wanted to imitate the natural redhead Elizabeth. Apparently hair dyes at the time were made of saffron and sulfur powder. Ooh, so saffron sounds nice, but sulfur powder? <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> the sulfur caused some serious side effects that were very unpleasant. Nausea, diarrhea, and nosebleeds. 
but hey, anything for fashion. Some less toxic hair treatments were wine and lemon juice and chamomile. I like red hair, but some of the fashions sound hideous. High-ranking fellows would grow one long strand of hair that they would tie with a ribbon on the side of their head. Combine that with padding everything and wearing man corsets and giant cod pieces. And the court women whitened their skin with lead and plucked their hairlines to imitate the queen. In this chapter, we see the queen's influence everywhere, not only in the hairstyles, but in her courtier's love lives. Constance will have to get royal approval for her marriage to Sir Charles Paget. Some historians attribute Elizabeth's involvement in her courtiers' marriages as some kind of twisted virgin bitterness. You are really defending Elizabeth against her grouchy historical critics today. I am, because if Elizabeth wanted to get married and not be a virgin, she could have done it in a split second. And really, all court alliances were of great interest to monarchs. Henry, Mary, and even Edward, or his council anyway, got involved in courtiers' marriages because marriages consolidated power and they might threaten or they might benefit the ruler. In our story, the queen would not like the stoner pageant match. They are two powerful Catholic families and she would never approve their uniting. No, and this is a conversation that Constance feels comfortable having only at the Arundel Inn because Philomena is a fellow Catholic. I mean, she would never tell her about Charles Paget if she didn't trust her so much. And Philomena sees right away that this match is a problem. She knows that Constance, like everyone, male or female, who is part of the court, has to get royal approval. Look what happened to ladies-in-waiting who didn't get the Queen's okay. Constance would have heard the gossip about the Grey sisters, Mary and Catherine. And the Greys had a strong claim to the throne through their maternal grandmother, Princess Mary Tudor. It's actually illegal for them to marry without royal permission. Right. It's not just Elizabeth being a bitch. They had to get permission. <laughs> yes. So Mary Grey marries a soldier who was serving at Whitehall. And that's not that serious. He's a commoner. Although it's not appropriate. But Catherine Grey marries Edward Seymour. First Earl of Hertford. And a family that Elizabeth has had trouble with before. Yes. Thomas Seymour, right? So Elizabeth feared that Catherine and Edward would have a child. So she put Catherine into prison. But good old Seymour snuck into the prison and Catherine had not one but two sons while in prison. Two male heirs who were of Tudor blood. Dangerous for the queen. But luckily for her... Although, unluckily for Catherine, Catherine lost the marriage documents. So Elizabeth had the marriage annulled. The boys were declared bastards, and they lost any claim to the throne. I wonder if someone helped her lose it. It seems it must have <laughs> it been. It seems crazy, but that is a story in itself. Whoops, where's the little paper that proves my son should be king? What happened to it? Who misplaced it? Who stole it? Who burnt it? And poor Catherine. She died in prison. Marrying without permission did not go well for her. But people seemed to do it anyway. I mean, what were they thinking? They knew Elizabeth would discover the truth and punish them. They weren't going to get away with it. <laughs> Jesse, you are endlessly surprised by how irrational human beings are. I know, but the trouble you could get into. I mean, even if she could not legally imprison couples for marrying without her permission, Elizabeth could make things terrible for them. Being exiled from court was a career ender, even if you weren't confined to the tower. So if Constance marries without Elizabeth's permission, she will lose her position as a lady-in-waiting, at the very least. 
Elizabeth expected complete compliance of her ladies. She expected them to marry who she chose for them, dress the way she dictated, to comport themselves to her liking, and to be educated in a way that would be a credit to her. And that was a high level of learning. That was a high bar. I mean, there is definitely a misconception out there that women like Constance or any of her fellow ladies-in-waiting would not have been very well educated. That is just simply not the case. This moment in England was influenced by humanist thinkers like Erasmus, who approved educating women. And as we mentioned in past episodes, one of the main proponents of women's education in England was Sir Thomas More, who educated his daughters with his son. Educating women was promoted. It took a slide under James I in the 17th century, but under the Tudors, it flourished. Well, the educational bestseller of the period was The Education of a Christian Woman. That sounds like a lot of fun. Although it is better than the non-education of a Christian woman. You have me there, 100%. That is true. <laughs> this tome was published in 1523 by Juan Luis Vives, and translated into English in 1529. It was praised by Erasmus and by Sir Thomas More, and Vives promoted education for all women of every social class. It's pretty amazing. It's isn't amazing. It? He said that women were intellectually equal to men. And yet we have been arguing that point for <laughs> hundreds of years. Why do we have to keep arguing that point? But to be fair, he's not saying that women should be independent and equal in authority to their husbands, just that they have the mental capacity to be educated. He believed in traditional roles for women, but he did feel that society as a whole would benefit from women being educated. And it would be thanks to him and people like Sir Thomas More that a good Catholic family would get a tutor for their girls. Someone like Constance would be taught classics and languages. And she would be expected to keep up her studies at the Queen's Court. Elizabeth herself was incredibly highly educated. At 11, she was able to speak six languages. At 11, I could barely speak one. Elizabeth spoke French, ancient Greek, English, Welsh, Spanish, and Latin, and probably some Italian to throw, thrown in too. Roger Ascham was the queen's tutor, and he also tutored her siblings, Edward and Mary. Ascham is quoted as saying, Mark all mathematical heads, which be wholly and only bent on these sciences. How solitary they be themselves. How unfit to live with others. How unapt to serve the world. Now, I personally have always loved that quote because it makes me feel much better about being terrible at math. The 16th century had different priorities. Yeah. In our techie society, Elizabeth would have studied advanced math, coding, economics, but Ascham thought the liberal arts, philosophy, logic, linguistics, literature, history, that those were the most important. Ascham was selected by Queen Catherine Parr, who oversaw the education of the royal kids. Catherine was a reformer, an advocate of women's education, and an author of religious philosophy. Actually, she was the first woman published in England under her own name. Catherine Parr is mainly known as Henry's sixth wife, and I have always pitied her this unpleasant privilege. I mean, let's, let's be honest. This poor woman had to have sex with Henry with all his oozing ulcers and his massive tummy and his bad temper. Yuck. Yuck. <laughs> but she was really so much more than just Henry VIII's last wife. She spent her free time very industriously. 
As you said, she was an author of at least three works, Psalms or Prayers, Prayers or Meditations, and The Lamentation of a Sinner. And she also wrote music. I think she made a huge impression on Elizabeth, who, you know, didn't have a mom. And Catherine became the ideal woman of intelligence and refinement. And we really see that ideal at Elizabeth's court. Elizabeth wanted her ladies to be impressive, so ambassadors would visit her court and think, what a bunch of beautiful, intelligent, and refined young ladies this English queen has around her. Also, the queen spent a lot of time with these women. She didn't want it to be a bunch of know-nothings. They were expected to be educated, but also entertaining and witty. Constance certainly feels undereducated in this witty and entertaining department. I mean, she might have been taught Latin and the lives of the saints at Stoner, but not secular fun. You don't think there's a lot of hot poetry in the education of a Christian woman? Mm, I do not. In this chapter, Constance is getting her first taste of secular fun, having a new experience reading poetry, Mm. something that Aunt Stoner would not like. No, she's reveling in verse and sexy feelings. She's reading for pleasure and unraveling it. It's all very exciting. I love reading Thomas Wyatt's poetry. I love Shakespeare, but these early poets are also wonderful, so moving. Go, burning sighs, unto the frozen heart to break the ice, which pity's painful dart might never pierce. And if that mortal prayer in heaven be heard, at least yet I desire. It's beautiful, but I think if you say it in a tutory way, it all rhymes. Like, go, burning sighs, unto the frozen heart. To break the ice which pity's painful dart might never pierce. And if that mortal prayer in heaven be heard, at least yet I desire. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to make that rhyme. It sounds so weird. I mean, the 16th century accent must have been very different than we imagine. It was not the typical Royal Shakespeare Company. And I, in my ignorance, didn't know Thomas Wyatt was the first person to write sonnets in English. I assumed it was Shakespeare. That's natural. The Bard's reputation is so overwhelming. But Sir Thomas Wyatt is considered the father of lyric poetry in English. And Wyatt copied the form from Petrarch. Petrarch was a 14th century Italian humanist who wrote poems to his chaste, beloved Laura, whom he loved from a distance. I don't know if Wyatt always loved from a distance. I don't think so. He had the reputation of being a bit of a dog. And these were poems written for a particular person, not to be printed and published. So Wyatt's position was very different from Shakespeare's. He was a courtier. He was a landowner. He didn't earn money as a poet. Shakespeare was a merchant-class theater professional who made his living from his words. At court, reading Wyatt's poetry, it must have been so titillating. It had a voyeuristic quality to it because his reader would suspect who it was and that it was about one person or another. I mean, I imagine they'd spend time trying to figure it out, and that would be fun, especially if you knew everyone involved. Then as now, we still play that guessing game. Elvis Costello said Allison is about someone specific, but who? Is Lemonade really about Jay-Z cheating on Beyonce? We love to speculate. But I think we also put a bigger premium on what we think of as authenticity, So we like to believe a writer has experienced something firsthand, and we value their work more highly if it's, quote, real. And I wonder if that's always been the case. It's a good point. Maybe people read Wyatt or went to the theater and saw Marlowe, Shakespeare, and Kidd, 
and never gave a moment's consideration to whether the poet lived these feelings or just had a wonderful imagination. You know, I think that's at the heart of this Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare obsession because we asked the question, if Shakespeare never went to Verona, how could he write Romeo and Juliet? But I don't think they worried about that in the 16th century. Who cares if he went to Verona or not? You and I both think Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, even if he never left England. <laughs> but we have a lot of faith in the imagination. Sure, or else we wouldn't be working on historical fiction. But if you listeners have an opinion about this, let us know how important you think it is to have experienced something to write about it. And leave us your comments on the Facebook page. Well, we're leaving Constance to revel in this lusty verse and maybe find another clue to the relic. We've enjoyed sharing this poetry with you. So listen next time when we return to court for the wedding of Lady Anne Russell and Sir Ambrose Dudley, brother of Robert. So see you next time and remember to listen for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-Minded Talk. Mm -hmm.